Welcome to Twill, the week in health law, the middle class tax cut podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on October 27th, 2017. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined, of course, by my co-host and likely the next high profile resignation from the Senate, who is Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. Well, Frank, I hope you had a good week. Absolutely. How about you, Nick? Not bad. Not bad. Seems awfully busy at the moment. That There's that, that middle of the semester where you, you just feel sort of the ground crumbling underneath you. Yes, which no, I, no doubt. I'm sure is, <laughs> is kind of what my students think as well. Anyway, uh, this week, uh, it's a great pleasure to welcome Spencer Weber-Waller, the Professor of Law, Interim Associate Dean of Academic Affairs and Director of the Institute for Consumer Antitrust Studies at Loyola University. University Chicago School of Law. Professor Waller is broadly published in antitrust with an impressive list of books and articles. This is someone we've wanted to have on the show for a while, and it's great to have you here, Spencer. Uh, it's great to be here, guys. Thanks for having me. Um, it's great to catch up on the air. Somewhere in Teaching 101, it says that at the beginning of a course, a professor should try and pick out some themes that the course is going to follow. And in my introduction to healthcare law and policy, one of the themes I pick out is what I call health exceptionalism. And I give a series of examples that are going to come up throughout the semester. Obvious things like fraud and abuse laws, corporate practice of medicine, certificate of need laws, and sort of other laws that limit market entry. The professional standard of care in um, health quality and safety cases. And then, of course, the the crowning glory is uh, Justice Scalia in Burwell when he proclaimed SCOTUS care as uh, being true exceptionalism as it was treated by the Supreme Court. You've got this wonderful new essay uh, that just came out in the Loyola uh, University Journal in which you sort of compare health exceptionalism, um, perhaps as I would frame it, with a view of antitrust law that you call transubstantive. Uh, so non-exceptional, I suppose. So that's where um, I think we'd love to sort of get you to state your thesis. But we know that there are people on the pod, and actually I'm one of them, uh, for which antitrust is is not their first religion. And so it would be great if you could sort of give us a, a gentle slope into antitrust before sort of hitting the uh, uh, the core of your article. Uh, sure. So, you know, antitrust is, uh, the name is uniquely American, but the concept is not. Uh, we were one of the first countries to have a general law about market competition. And antitrust is simply the law of competition. And outside the U.S., it's referred to as competition law. In the U.S., uh, we have the Sherman Act and various amendments and uh, additions uh, that came over the years. So since 1890, we basically had a law that says, uh, unless Congress gives you some kind of an exemption or some kind of an immunity, uh, you are subject to some broad broad principles, regardless of whether you're in the ice cream business, the transportation business, uh, the concrete business, or the healthcare business. And there's three basic principles that take less than a minute to, to lay out. Uh, the first is that uh, Section 1 of the Sherman Act prohibits anti-competitive agreements between competitors. That can be price fixing, that can be bid rigging. Those are the hardcore cartel violations that will normally land you in prison. There are other agreements that are illegal, but not generally prosecuted as uh, you know criminal violations. Uh, Section 2 of the Sherman Act prohibits monopolization and attempted monopolization. And that covers the abusive behavior of uh, 
dominant firms where it, they're excluding competition, uh, not serving and, and abusing consumers and not really doing anything that serves uh, efficiency or innovation. So you can think about the old uh, Microsoft case. You can think about current concerns about Amazon and Google. And then there's Section 7 of the Clayton Act, which came later, which prohibits mergers and acquisitions, which can harm competition, at least potentially harm competition. So those are the basic ground rules. They're uh, designed to apply to all industries. And in the piece that, that you know we're talking about, and in, in, in a concern that I've had since I've begun teaching in this area, is healthcare, you know, antitrust exceptionalism for healthcare. Um, Tim Graney raised this theme 30 years ago. Uh, and, you know, I came uh, 30, 40 years ago, and I have come to the conclusion that for a variety of reasons, uh, the healthcare industry, particularly healthcare providers, uh, think they're special and think the rules don't apply to them in ways that would be laughable in other industries, but often taken seriously by courts and agencies for reasons we can talk about. One of the things I wanted to get into in terms of the antitrust landscape is I want to think a little bit about the nature of contemporary thought in antitrust, um, sort of building on or pivoting off of an article that you uh, recently published on uh, new voices in antitrust law, and then think about how that might map or not map to healthcare exceptionalism. So one of the things in terms of antitrust law is I tend to think of there being sort of three camps right now. Maybe there's more, but one being sort of Chicago orthodoxy, the sort of uh, approach to antitrust law that Bork sort of pioneered with the antitrust paradox, being very skeptical of government intervention and characterizing it as a way of punishing success. The second being, I think, of a school that you lead with, with some other folks in terms of a more consumer-focused antitrust or one that is uh, a bit more realistic and open to empirical evidence that is a bit more reformist and there's books like How the Chicago School Overshot the Mark um, that Robert Potofsky edited that serve in that camp. And then the final group, I would say, is uh, sort of a more uh, a Neil Brandeisian school, the sort of like uh, folks like Lena Kahn, Matt Stoller, Sandy Vasais, and others who are sort of, or even international folks uh, from Europe uh, in terms of their competition law policy that maybe are going to try to totally break out of the um, economic paradigm in the case of the Neil Brandeisian school or in the case of uh, Europe, just having a very, very different uh, view about how to uh, attack the problem. And what I'm wondering is, do you think that healthcare exceptionalism or sort of the, the willingness of courts to sort of go easy on the healthcare sector, is it an outgrowth of sort of a misguided extension of Chicago school or Chicagoism? Or is it something different? Is it sort of a different, a, a type of uh, just soft spot for claims made on behalf of doctors, hospitals, drug companies, and insurers? Wow, that's, that's a, a great question. Um, I haven't given that a lot of thought, Frank. And it's awesome because I know you're so well read and, and it just ties in so many things that you and I have talked about over the years. Um, my best guess is um, I'm very sympathetic to the way competition policy is looked at outside the United States. I'm very sympathetic to what the Neil Brandeisians uh, you know, are trying to do by looking at questions of how economic power becomes questions of political power. Um, but I think actually in healthcare, there might be something else that's uh, going on um, because regardless of what framework, even if you think antitrust is just about the promotion of wealth maximization, which is sort of ultimately the Chicago school, and I, I'm, I'm not a fan for reasons that, that we can talk about. But even if you accept their basic premise, um, I think even somebody like Robert Bork and anyone who follows in that tradition would say things like, uh, defendants don't get to make arguments that competition is bad for their industry because Congress has conclusively decided that our policy is one of market competition, unless there's some special law to the contrary. I think even a 
a Chicagoan would say, you don't get to argue that, yeah, I fixed prices, but I fixed a reasonable price, so that's okay. And I don't think even a Chicagoan would say, well, yeah, I hurt competition, um, but competition is just bad for society in general, and I'm helping society achieve better safety or health or something else like that. So um, what I'm seeing over time, not in every case, is that arguments crop up in the healthcare sector that would be laughed out of court in any other context, regardless of whether the judge you know, favors the, that school, my school, some other school yet to come. To an extent, I, I take from your, your piece a sort of a snowflake thesis, that it's not so much what the Supreme Court is saying, which you seem generally approving of and seeing as transubstantive. But really what you're pointing out is just continual raising of doctrinally flawed arguments by healthcare stakeholders, particularly physicians, that instead of getting laughed out of court, at least get traction in the lower level of courts. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's a fair characterization. I think the Supreme Court, when they take the handful of healthcare cases that involve antitrust over the years, they more or less get it right. They're playing the traditional antitrust game of looking at, is this likely to harm competition? Are there any credible arguments for efficiencies on the other side? And if so, you know, has, has the defendant proved them? That's fine. Um, you know, sometimes plaintiffs win, sometimes plaintiffs lose. And it's been the lower courts that have seemed to go off the rails in ways that uh, just wouldn't come out the same at, at, at all in other cases, and in fact have been rejected by most uh, higher level courts, you know, for 100 plus years. So perhaps one way that we could go through the article and give our listeners a sense of some of your insights in it, uh, Spencer, would be to think about, you know, what are some of the most egregious cases? And maybe if we could start in the realm of hospital mergers, you have a great section about the continued weirdness of hospital mergers. And, and maybe if you could give a sense of how the uh, court's treatment of hospital mergers sort of threw the Federal Trade Commission for a loop uh, over historically. Yeah. Um, and, and I think the answer is in this area, it's getting a little bit better. If you look at the recent uh, decisions blocking the healthcare insurance mergers, you got a fairly standard analysis of what are the predictions of competitive harms and really held the defendants to a high burden of proof for the things that they uh, wanted to raised to, to say that, oh yeah, sure, we're going to harm competition maybe in this way, but it's going to be countervailed uh, in, in these other ways. But this has been relatively recent uh, vintage. If you go back into the 90s, the FTC brought a series of healthcare challenges um, and, and a couple cases from the antitrust division that all got thrown out of court for some of the the, the weirder things that we've ever seen in uh, in antitrust law. And, and, and they were something like 0 and 7 or 0 and 8 in these cases. And it took a couple of decades to kind of uh, have the agencies giddy up and try again. So what happened in these cases, they're all very fact specific and they're all uh, involved typically local markets such as um, a few counties in Iowa or an area in Long Island uh, in in suburban New York. Um, The courts, the lower courts went out of their way to find ways to just let the merger go through that tore at the fabric of antitrust law. In the Iowa case, uh, which I think is tenant uh, healthcare, it's one of the older cases, the court just went out of their way to torture the size of the geographic market to bring in uh, hospitals and primary care <clears throat> providers uh, such that if you merge the two hospitals in question, it didn't look like they were harming competition. And it involved very unrealistic and unproven assumptions about how far uh, patients would drive for primary care and secondary care and tertiary care. Um, and I, I think uh, even 
even more surprising were these cases where uh, one hospital on Long Island, uh, a merger, basically said, well, we'll just promise not to raise prices for a few years. And the court went, yeah, okay. And and, and other courts um, accepted this notion that I've just never seen in other contexts, which more or less said hospitals are important members of our community and would never injure their own consumers. And of course, some hospitals are non-for-profit, but there's no reason that non-for-profit hospitals aren't trying to profit maximize. They just don't distribute it to to shareholders the way another company would. And to simply buy that kind of argument without a really profound uh, factual basis um, is just unusual, you know, and um, you'd be very hard pressed to find any of the results that I was just talking about in in an antitrust merger case involving any other industry. And what the FTC did is, you know, I really respect what they did. And this this came in part under uh, even a Republican administration when uh, Bill Kovacic was the chairman of the FTC. They uh, did a retrospective study of their past hospital mergers, the ones that they didn't challenge and the ones that they challenged but lost. And kind of based on that research, uh, they brought a, a challenge some years later of a case that they had cleared that actually relates to Chicago it was a merger between uh, Evanston and Highland Park uh, hospitals. And they, uh, they they won this case and they got a settlement, uh, but it was a very weak settlement because a lot had changed over the years and it was very hard to kind of uh, unscramble the omelet that, that, that took place. So, you know, the agencies learned from that, got back in the game, um, but the risks are that uh, lower court judges who don't see a ton of these cases, there's no reason why they should, are going to buy these arguments that just really wouldn't work if you were in a standard, uh, any other context, whether it's manufacturing or service or professions or something else. Do you think the uh, that rather weak remedial part of the um, the Evanston uh, case, where there was conduct relief rather than divestiture, do you think that sends a bad message that uh, you know even if these things uh, do go pear shaped legally, the the price that you pay is not going to be very high? It's hard for me to say. I think the FTC did did a great service by getting back in the game, taking a hard look at past cases, and then you know coming up with evidence that would persuade a judge uh, that there was a violation. I, I think the price they paid was they got relatively weak relief. Um, instead of separating the two hospitals, they simply forced them to create a firewall so that the two hospitals, despite common ownership, would compete for uh, insurance contracts, basically. And that's a pretty strange and unworkable creature. Uh, I don't know how far, much farther they could have pushed uh, and gotten court approval for that. But um, it's out there and other uh, firms can make unusual arguments that while their merger is illegal, it should be allowed to be consummated as long as they behave themselves. That's getting close to that, that idea at its worst, which was if we promise not to raise prices, it'll okay if we merge. Moving on from the hospitals to physicians, um, you have also have a section on how uh, doctors and price fixing. And you discuss how there seems to be a real problem where even though it's clear law that forms of physician price fixing are legal and could potentially even bring in criminal liability, by and large, DOJ foregoes uh, its prerogative to bring these criminal cases. That leaves the FTC, you know, with its civil cases and that the law is just a bit of a mess there, that there's under enforcement. Could you explain how that happens? Sure. And I just have to go back to a little bit of a personal story on this. When I was in law school, the summer after my first year, I worked for the FTC uh, uh, regional office in Chicago, which at the time did both antitrust and consumer protection. And I come home and yeah, obviously my parents, I was living at home and they knew exactly where I worked. And my dad asked me what I had worked on. And I told them I was working on some antitrust cases and uh, what we're doing. I said, "Hey, hey, dad, what 
what did you do? And my, I should point out my father was a dentist who then said to me, oh, I'm working with the American Dental Association to exempt the medical industry from the antitrust laws. <laughs> wow. And I later got to watch my father on the Phil Donahue show make some of these arguments. And there's just an attitude and there's a lot of advocates you know, for this on, 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 uh, in, in academia and practice, but particularly doctors have the view that's just mistaken legally that being part of a honorable profession um, means that the normal antitrust rules that we've talked about somehow don't apply. Uh, any lawyer would tell you that the law applies unless you can find an exemption or an immunity or a decision that says you're not covered. And there's no, no such um, there's no such decision. Now, I will say that Congress came close to adopting some version of what my father on the dental side and others on the, the MD side you know, were pushing for in the 80s. Some have described that as a near-death experience for the antitrust laws. And that may be one reason why the agencies, particularly DOJ, has uh, gone easy on this to you know, not have a, a big backlash. But, but there's a substantial cost. I mean, uh, the Supreme Court in Maricopa County uh, laid out some pretty clear ground rules and, and, and pretty much you know just said that the Sherman Act, as far as price fixing agreements are concerned, established one uniform rule applicable to all industries. And that and, and I was just going to say that, that that rule is competitors can't agree on price, but if competitors are forming joint ventures and other legitimate um, business arrangements where they share risks, share profits, and at least have the potential to do something together that they couldn't have done separately, that's not per se illegal. It might harm competition. Uh, if they have power in a relevant market, um, but they at least, you know, uh, it's not automatically illegal. Conversely, if two competitors, doctors, lawyers, ice cream vendors, uh, simply agree on price or the territories that they serve, and there's nothing else going on, that's per se illegal. And DOJ has said, you know, that's the stuff that we will go after in the grand jury. And that's exactly the stuff with, with like two or three exceptions that they've never uh, tackled in the, uh, you know, in the physician uh, market. Before we leave Maricopa County, I have to ask you the question that always confounds my students, which is that was a maximum fee schedule, right? Yes. Th that was the price fixing. Yeah. So what's wrong with a maximum fee? <laughs> Well, um, you know, there, there, there's some evidence in that case and just generally from economic theory that, that, that oftentimes what's billed as a maximum uh, ceiling is really just a minimum floor. Mm -hmm. uh, but the Supreme Court d didn't get into that. And the, the law just says horizontal agreements on price uh, are, are per se illegal. And you don't really look at effects and you don't actually look at defendants' justifications for these things. That's what a per se rule is. It's a shortcut. It's an irrebuttable presumption. And so, so that's, you know, my students raise that same same. Uh, question all the time. But I mean, it provides a guideline, it provides a roadmap. And both the agencies, the DOJ and I trust division and the FTC have gone out of their way to give specialized guidance to physicians in a bunch of um, uh, guidelines and healthcare antitrust statements. And that itself is exceptional. You know, we don't have like price fixing guides for the movie industry. We don't have price fixing guides for um, um, uh, ocean shipping. Uh, we just have the law and the case law and your lawyer's advice. And hopefully you have the common sense to comply with the law and not go to jail. And what's going on is uh, maybe maybe because Maricopa you know is a funny case, um, but for whatever reason, there are still all of these um, 
uh, uh, sham independent practice associations, uh, really thin joint ventures that don't involve any integration or sharing of risk. And what happens is if you don't prosecute those um, on the criminal side, then the FTC has to bring uh, individual cases against uh, each of these kind of groups, you know, in, in each locality. And there's just dozens and dozens and dozens of these. And the FTC almost always wins. Uh, there's a risk that the court will say, well, it really isn't per se illegal. It should be proven under a rule of reason. But it's this long, slow mop-up um, because one important industry uh, is engaged in a, pra- a pattern and practice of, of conduct where, where they should know better that, you know, in any other context, would uh, there be some very high prominent criminal prosecutions. So other than the price-fixing pieces, when it comes to physicians and groups of physicians and so on, what are the other types of cases you want to put on our radar? We've talked about why, at least over time, there's been a lot of uh, healthcare antitrust exceptionalism uh, in the area of hospital mergers. Uh, we've talked about it in terms of doctor and, and other provider um, kind of agreements with competitors. Uh, I talk in the article about how uh, over time there there have been these same issues with respect to group boycott law, um, with respect to what is and isn't interstate commerce. And a lot of this is historical. I think the most current issues are going to be um, how antitrust applies to conduct that is encouraged but not mandated uh, by the ACA and, and whatever is to come. One of the things that I think is really interested in terms of that transition to the ACA is the following. I mean, I know that when I was at Seton Hall, one of the things that our health law center was doing was, uh, I think, offering advice to the state in terms of reconciliation of the policy objectives of, say, state and federal antitrust law and the Affordable Care Act's emphasis on integrated delivery systems, particularly um, accountable care organizations. And I know that you cited the uh, Barack Richmond and uh, Havenhurst work uh, calling for ACOs to be sort of scrutinized. And I'm wondering, you know, towards the end of your article, you talk about how we, we've got to go on one path or the other. We've either got to go on the path of having uh, healthcare look more and more like a market with arm's length transactions and with real competition, or we should go in the direction of perhaps the model of uh, public utility regulation of ever larger vertically integrated delivery systems. And could you explain how that works out, both respect to the accountable care organizations and then uh, generally how that, that tension arises? Part of what you talked about is the role of the states, and that's really important for anti- trust purposes because there's this state action uh, doctrine, which is not the state action doctrine that con law people are familiar with. There's a state action defense in antitrust that if a state has clearly articulated a policy of uh, uh, not, uh, well, against competition in favor of some regulatory regime and it it, it, uh, actively supervises that policy, then the antitrust laws just weren't intended to cover that. And there are all kinds of examples of uh, certificates of need and state-mandated mergers of, of, of agencies that, that might be immune from the antitrust laws. And that, that may be bad policy, but at least they're, they're conforming with the law. Um, one thing that I found really troubling is the FTC opened up a, a merger complaint against a, a hospital merger in West Virginia. And uh, the state legislature promptly amended its law to conform to the state action immunity by creating 
creating this comprehensive regulatory system involving, I think it was their state attorney general and whatever they call their healthcare authority in West Virginia. So they, they effectively immunized this merger. So that's not a very thoughtful, well, uh, um, well-debated policy of replacing competition with regulation. That was a heavily lobbied sort of last minute thing to immunize a transaction between um, you know, powerful hospitals in a, in a municipality. Um, and they may have, it may be a right answer for, for West Virginia and their healthcare needs, but it's not likely to produce uh, either lower costs or, or, or greater innovation. Am I correct that it's not just West Virginia that's done that? There have been several states that are, are doing similar kind of things. I think we talked, Frank, didn't we, to, with Jamie King about some of those yes. issues in a prior pod. Yeah. And by the way, you guys know that the, the one thing that unites antitrust liberals with antitrust conservatives is we generally don't like uh, you know expanding immunities. Now, you know, uh, in, in terms of the ACA, it certainly has lots of carrots and sticks that you guys know more about than I do that incentivize um, integration in different ways. And by the way, my article was part of a, you know, a really fun symposium about reconciling competition and consumer protection in healthcare. And our keynote speaker was Zeke Emanuel. And, you know, he just said it really nicely. He just said, consolidation is not innovation. So, so the, the, you know, the mere fact that uh, the ACOs and other ventures are getting bigger doesn't mean that there's any serving the, the consumer interests in this. And with all the incentives in the ACA to do this, there's no antitrust immunity built in. In fact, to the contrary, there's a clause that says, Nothing in this act is intended to repeal or modify the antitrust laws as they exist. So I think hospitals and provider groups uh, get a mixed message and the, the lawyers uh, who, who counsel them perhaps are, are contributing to this. But it's not surprising that you get decisions like in Idaho where um, a horizontal merger between a, a hospital-based primary care physicians group and a, and a, and a outside a, a PCP group, um, you know, was challenged on antitrust grounds and, and it won. And it was brought by the FTC and the Idaho Attorney General. And uh, I think the, the fear was this is going to drive up costs and, and, and the bill that the government foots in, in, in the healthcare industry. I don't think that's going to be the last uh, kind of case that gets brought. I think the FTC has to pick its shots and not challenge um, transactions that arguably are efficient and arguably contribute to innovation. I think they should, the agencies should require very clear proof. Uh, there's not a lot of cases in general antitrust where there's harm to competition, but the efficiencies are so great that it's allowed. I think you'd be hard pressed to find anything other than a efficiencies as a tiebreaker case. And I think in part, uh, some of these insurance health mergers, uh, the defendants were making thinly supported efficiency and innovation claims where the court just said, I got a clear record of harm to competition and speculation as to what, what might out, over, uh, outweigh it. And we're going to, we're going to, you know, ban this merger. I think there's more of that to come. Do we have something of a whack-a-mole problem here? I mean, the the pressure to find friends as a as a good merger person, I know Elizabeth Walker uh, uh, terms it to to find some kind of merger or other kind of joint venture or so on um, to to go vertical uh, as well as going horizontal. Um, the pressures are so intense, and the, the number of deals being done are so huge. It seems almost impossible for the agencies to keep up. Well, well that's right, and they have to uh, pick a mix of you know large national transactions like the healthcare insurance cases from the, the last year or so, and at the same time. Um, pick their spots for local markets where there's really going to be some harm to competition, but it but affects the locality. I mean, St. Luke's was Pocatello, Idaho, if I recall right. 
Um, but yeah, they can't bring, there's only so many of those cases they can bring at the same time. And I don't know if you wanted to get into it, but you know, the, the most recent iteration of this is the, the thing in the front page of the Wall Street Journal about CVS exploring a merger with Anthem, one of the you know, rejected suitors in the healthcare insurance market, where this is a, a vertical uh, merger, if I understand it right, where they're basically trying to compete with Amazon, who is seeking pharma- uh, pharmacy licenses in various states. And I'm so glad you mentioned this uh, potential rivalry, because I think it sets up something that I actually lead off my healthcare course with, which is I, I start with a slide that has uh, the food industry and sort of shows how much of food is concentrated in like six or seven different big companies. And then I move on to like the media consolidation and sort of show how, you know, there's really a, a ton of media consolidation. And then, you know, look at the search engine, social networks, markets, things like that. And I just ask the students, you know, do you think that essentially the bottom line is that eventually we're going to move to a situation where there is a real uh, massive vertical integration and conglomeratization in healthcare to bring this type of rationalization? Um, or do you think that you know things like the corporate practice of medicine doctrine and other counter tendencies, more centrifugal tendencies, will lead to a more decentralized healthcare landscape? And we always have a good discussion. And I'm just wondering, you know, it's it's interesting to think that perhaps an upshot of your article is that it's because of a certain lackadaisical nature of enforcement by the courts and elsewhere in healthcare that it is now ripe for a takeover by, say, digital giants, the likes of Amazon or others. Um, do you think that's possible? Or do you think there's this, these large questions are just very hard for antitrust to, to answer? Well, antitrust hasn't done a great job uh, about uh, overall consolidation industry by industry of the kind that you're, you're debating with your students. The defense, uh, uh, defense contractor industry consolidation in a huge way in the 90s, and that was allowed because the federal government, as the sole buyer of high-tech defense stuff, said that's what they wanted, and that that's fine. That's a policy decision where the you know the people who bought the stuff were willing to pay more as long as they had an assured, safe supply. And you know, antitrust essentially failed to deal one way or another with Walmart and its general societal effects. And I suspect we're not going to be any more successful with Amazon specifically. Now, in healthcare, are we going to end up with that? I think you guys know more about this than I do, but I think it depends on where you live. Um, if you live in a small market, you may end up with a very limited number of options, particularly for um, high-tech and very specialized kind of tertiary services. You, you may end up with essentially one hospital uh, chain and a small number of standalone providers of, of competing services. I think for those of us in major metropolitan areas, that's probably some decades off, but uh, things can often move fast and just thinking in Chicago, there have been a lot of hospital uh, mergers that have been both uh, contested and, and accepted. And the, the trend is uh, for people like me who live in the city, you, you tend to be either in the Northwestern system or the advocate system or the UFC system. And that is certainly some choice, but that's a, a mere fraction of what, uh, what was available uh, 20, 30 years ago. I wonder also if there's another variable, which is sort of who ends up winning here. Um, I did a sort of a little thought piece as a, on one of the blogs um, a few months ago, um, which now looks a little prescient about, you know, whether Amazon should actually buy um, a healthcare network um, and what that might look like and what the business model could look like. Um, and I wonder whether part of the answer to this question is going to be whether we end up with legacy healthcare providers 
is winning. So something like an Anthem CVS, you know, maybe they then buy HCA or something like that, or whether we have more of a hybrid in which you have essentially a tech company that has a very large presence in healthcare. So it's a bit more of a hybrid. And I wonder if, if, if that might in the end lead to the kind of decision that the courts uh, will have to make as to what is going to happen with healthcare flavored antitrust. You make great use of a, of a yogiism in the article, uh, Spencer, you know, when you come to a fork of the road, take it. And I wonder whether that will be the ultimate fork in the road that answers your question as to what, whether we're going to have exceptional antitrust law or transubstantive uh, antitrust law. Uh, are they going, are the courts going to be dealing with real healthcare providers, legacy healthcare providers, or a completely different kind of hybrid entity? I think that's it. I, th- I think we really have a choice to make. And I understand that Congress is dysfunctional. And I understand the politics of, you know, rethinking um, the, the, the compromises that were embodied in the ACA. But at some point, we're going to have to decide uh, what our values are. And, you know, antitrust uh, has a faith in markets. And there's a legitimate debate about whether, you know, markets are the best way to allocate uh, health care. And, you know, we as a country have decided to have a little competition to keep price down, um, but try to move toward having health care and insurance available to a, a broader swath of the population. Um, but I think at the end, it's going to be one or the other and not all of the above. And if we're going to move toward a system of some comprehensive regulatory solution where we're balancing competition, consumer protection, affordability, uh, coverage, and all those things, antitrust takes a, takes a backseat and that's fine um, as long as we do it in a thoughtful, democratic, engaged debate you know, from policy people and, and, and in the political sphere. I'm not sure that's going to happen. What I'm afraid is going to happen is that we're just going to kind of p- pretend to be doing a market-based economy, but kind of do ad hoc regulatory solutions that don't really achieve either the any of the objectives. So I think we're going to get, if we're not careful, bad antitrust and bad healthcare regulation. And that was the Week in Health Law. Big thank you to Professor Waller for joining us. On Twitter, you can find him at S. Weber Waller. That's S-W-E-B-E-R-W-A-L-L-E-R. Thank you so much for joining us, Spencer. That was great fun. Oh, thank you, guys. Uh, happy to do this anytime. I appreciate uh, the chance to oh, chat. We'll, we'll, we'll be calling. We post our show notes at Troll.com. I'm at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. Frank is... At Frank Pasquale on Twitter. Thank you for joining us, and have a legally interesting but healthy week. <laughs> <laughs>